Would you turn tonight to Romans chapter 9? We'll pick up in verse 6. And we need to divide this up, and we'll have yet a, a third portion of this particular message because it is a long chapter because of the content that's in it and the way it's divided up. We'll take verses 6 through 13 tonight and the second installment of Unbelieving Israel. And as I say that, I want to make sure that I'm extremely clear. That doesn't mean that there's ever been uh, someone who's been of, of Jewish descent that could not be saved. And it also doesn't mean that everyone who is born of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob automatically is saved. It means exactly the same thing that you and I have to deal with, and that's the role of faith and choice in believing in our lives. And so when we say unbelieving Israel, we mean exactly that. And it's actually Paul's point here in these next uh, seven verses. And so I want to take them all together. And before we do so, let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your plan for Israel. And we pray, Lord, that as, as we uh, sit here tonight together, we pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We ask for uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu, God, that you would protect him, Lord. He's constantly a target. Uh, we pray also that you would bless uh, that land and prosper it, Lord, because your word says those who bless Israel will be blessed of you. And so we bless Israel. And we also pray that you'd pull the blinders off, or that that unbelief would be turned to belief. And we know that ultimately you will do that to the whole nation. And we pray that that would even be beginning tonight. And so bless us as we study your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. God's people said, amen. Amen. Verse 6 here in Romans chapter 9. And I want you to be very careful here in verse 6. Because it is the place where people often start to veer off into replacement theology. And this is a very accurate, I'm reading from the New King James translation, it's It's important that you get the conjunctions correct here. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect. In other words, it's not that the word of God has ever gone out and returned void. The word of God consistently and constantly always does exactly what God intends it to do. And so he begins by reminding us of that. For they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Notice how that's phrased. There are those who are Israel who are not of Israel, just like there are those who are saved who are not necessarily from the Gentiles as well. So even though salvation was given to the Jews and it was rejected, not every Gentile becomes saved, and not every Jew will become saved either It is a matter of heart. It has always been a matter of heart. It will never be anything other than a matter of heart, which is the same thing as saying faith. I want you to also remember what Israel means. It means governed by God. And it will be in reverse order that you will see how we get there, because the land that Israel currently occupies is the land of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. So it's referring to the Jewish people in general, but it's also reminding them of their heritage from God's perspective. From God's perspective, Israel has always supposed to have been governed by God. It's supposed to be a theocracy in that sense. And while that's not a suitable government for the United States of America, It is exactly what God intended for Israel. They were always to be governed by God. And yet tonight, I can assure you, they are not governed by God. Furthest thing from it. And in some ways, Israel is actually one of the most secular countries in the entire world. And so he goes on. Nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called, that is, those who are, are, who are the children of the flesh, who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. And so the flesh has never been pleasing to God. 
is making sure we get these things locked into our minds. Because some people think that because you were born into a Baptist family, you're automatically saved and you're automatically Baptist. And there are those who think that every last Jew, because they were born a Jew, will be in heaven. That also is not true. Every single one of you and every person throughout all time has had to do one thing, and that's choose whom they will serve. But the children of the promise are counted as the seed. So those who are of faith and who believe the promise are of the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And so now we get into the history of the Jewish people. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, so we've already gotten to Abraham and Isaac, amen? For the children not yet being born, how many sons did Isaac have with Rebekah? He had two, right? Not yet being born, having done not any good nor evil, in other words, there was There was no birthright specifically assigned to them that caused them to be on a list or not on a list. They hadn't done anything to receive it. It wasn't the fact that they were merely uh, born of a specific set of parents that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand. And so he has in view something that's greater than their simple birthright nationally. Not of works but of him who calls. Not of works, lest any should boast, but it is the free gift of God. It has always been by faith that anyone comes to know God. And it was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. And so tonight, Unbelieving Israel, part two. This is a hard concept for us. It's very difficult for, on one hand, God to have made so many promises that are unconditional to a very specific group of people, as we began last time. In the beginning of this chapter, God clearly makes promises to national Israel. He said, I'm I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to populate the earth through you, and through you, I'm actually going to bring Messiah. That's a pretty stellar list. And in fact, last time we saw nine things unique to the Jewish people that no other people on the face of the earth could have. And yet, those nine things are not enough to save you. Those nine things are not enough to get you into the presence of God. Those nine things, in fact, to the Jewish people have become a stumbling block. Because they so believed that those nine things made them special that they began to serve those nine things. They began to believe that simply by being born of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, of the lineage of the Jewish people, that that automatically entitled them to a right relationship with God. And for us, we can look at it this way. Many of us come from a Christian home, come from a Christian heritage. We live in a largely Christian nation that was certainly founded on Christian principles. And many people believe that they are saved simply because they're an American. I can't even tell you how wrong that thinking is. Because without faith, no one will see God. And without believing in the only begotten Son of God, no one ever gets to heaven. Jesus said it himself. And so Paul, wanting to cut himself off, says this hard saying. What does this mean? This unbelief is obviously deep. It persists to this day. God made the patriarchs these promises. Was he not being truthful? So if you would, turn to John 6, and I want to give you a hard saying. While you're turning there, Jesus spoke these words in this synagogue, uh, which we've traveled to in all of our trips as we traveled to Israel. There in Capernaum, probably in that very spot, underneath those columns, underneath the portico, uh, Jesus undoubtedly would have stood and read the book of the law. 
Verse 56 of John 6, one of the great hard sayings of Jesus. You see, God says stuff that sometimes we don't quite get. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me. Yuck. I don't even like how this starts. And I in him. And as the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So he who feeds on me will live because of me. And this is the bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers ate manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. And so he's saying something. He's like, wow. They're like, their minds are about to go poof. And then he says, and these things he said to him, to them, in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. That synagogue. And therefore many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a hard saying who can understand it. And when Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, now remember, Jesus is God. He's not just a traveling itinerant preacher. He's God incarnate in human flesh. And so everything they think, he already knows. And I want you to notice what he says. Because people get hung up on God understanding something ahead of time and thereby taking the issue of choice out of the equation. And yet Jesus makes this very clear that's not what happened. And when Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, does this offend you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. <laughs> Look, it's not about... It's not about anything that you're going to do here. It's about the Spirit's work. For the flesh profits nothing. He said it's never been about the flesh. It's always been about the work of the Spirit. In other words, he's making the equivocation of faith here. And the words that I speak to you are spirit, and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. Where is he? He's in a synagogue. Who do you think is in there with him? Jewish people. Why is he saying that? Because he's saying the very same thing that the Apostle Paul is now reiterating in chapter 9 of the book of Romans. It's never been about you being born of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It has always been a matter of spirit. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe, and who would betray him. In other words, when Jesus was arrested in the garden, he knew exactly who was going to come kiss him on the cheek. And yet he allowed him to do it. He allowed him to travel for over three years with him. You see, God can know things and still not have made those people do those things. He is quite capable of having foreknowledge of something while at the same time completely allowing for man's free will and choice. That's a hard saying, amen? We have a tough time wrapping our mind around that because what we would do is we would interject ourselves if we had all power and all knowledge into the situation and we would change the situation. We, we, would, we would be hounding Judas. It's like, Judas, don't do this. Look, man, we need to go on the other side of the lake, and you and me, we're going to have a beatdown or something, but you're not betraying Jesus. i got to get this into your head. And so God presents before us tonight the incredible difficulty of understanding something that's hard. This is perhaps one of the greatest teachings on the sovereign workings of God found in all of Scripture. He's reminding us that He alone sets the standards. He alone makes the rules. He alone has all knowledge. He alone has the power to affect things and yet does not. He leaves you with the choice to believe. Not one person in here will ever be forced into the kingdom and no one will ever be forced out. If you're in, you're in because you believe and if you're out, 
you do not believe, and that's the reason. Isaiah 55, there in verse 8, reminds us, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, says the Lord. Amen. Hallelujah and glory. Can I tell you, there are some things that God has said that I was like, wow. I just kind of shake my head and I go, I'm glad you know God because I don't. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. God is dealing in this chapter, actually in the next couple of chapters, with his chosen people who remain tonight his chosen people. And yet his chosen people have not chosen him, largely. Many have, most have not. And yet they're still chosen. When I get to heaven, I'm going to have a few questions for God on this particular subject. It's like, really, Lord? The Holocaust. Really, God? The the diaspora? Did they have to be scattered? As we sit here tonight, there are almost as many Jewish people, full blood, absolutely Jewish, people who live in the United States as live in Israel. 7.1, 7.2 million here, about 8.3, 8.5 there. They're still scattered. They're still dispersed. A little bit of history will be some help to you, especially when we get towards the end of the study tonight. May 1948, the birthday of Israel. They're finally allowed to go back into the land. They become a nation. They return, and they begin, interestingly enough, most had forgotten their native, what should be their native language, Hebrew. And so what you have right now is you actually have younger people who are teaching older people Hebrew still to this day. Because the younger people learned it from birth, the older people came back and they spoke Russian or they spoke you know, some dialect of Ukrainian or they came from somewhere, someplace, and they actually don't speak proper Hebrew. They often spoke a broken form of Hebrew along with their native language, sometimes German, called Yiddish. And so there's all kinds of slang and everything else in it. So if you want to get proper Hebrew, you talk to a college-age student or maybe a 30- or 40-year-old, but definitely not the older people that came back right after World War II. Their, Their Hebrew is relatively broken. But God said, I will bring them back. I will regather them again. The prophecy of Ezekiel, I'll bring, I'll raise up those dry bones, I'll put sinew on it, I'll put tissue on it, and I'm going to plant them back, and once I do that, they'll never leave. Well, hallelujah, they're back. The Jewish people are in the land. They are, they are met the following day with a war. They win that war. And then on June of 1967, what we call the Six-Day War, That war breaks out. It does last six days. The Jewish people not only prevail when they should have been wiped off the face of the earth, insurmountable odds, unbelievable miracles by God, they not only persevere, but they actually expand the borders of Israel. Now bear in mind that that land is not the land that God gave to them, the land of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It is a very small portion of that land. But it is nonetheless the land that the UN partitioned out took the Palestinian mandate, the Balfour mandate, stripped it down, and gave them this little wedge of land. They expand that. One of the things that happens is for the first time, they actually recapture the Temple Mount. The Temple Mount is is regained. Uh, An Israeli half-track actually makes it up on, goes through one of the gates, probably the Jaffa Gate, finally makes it over there. How they get it on the Temple Mount, I have no idea. But a paratrooper named Matagur gets up on top of the Temple Mount and declares that the Temple Mount is now Israel's. Belongs to the Jewish people. The chaplain of the Israeli army, fledgling army, Shlomo Goran, gets up and makes a speech and he says, and I quote, We have taken the city of God. We're entering the Messianic era for the Jewish people. See, they're still waiting for the Messiah to come, even in 1967. And I promise to the Christian world, what we are responsible for, 
we will take care of. That's on June 7th. We'll take care of it. We're going to guard the holy sites. We've taken the Temple Mount back on Saturday, June 17, 1967. Defense Minister Moshe Dayan goes to the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which is the largest of the three mosques that sit on the Temple Mount platform uh, in an effort to put some goodwill out there, sits down with the five Muslim leaders of the Quaf, the Jordanian Muslim ruling authority, and gives back the Temple Mount. They don't even have it for ten full days to keep peace. Got to let Jordan control it. Jordan is the land of Edom. Edom means red. The name comes from Esau. Lock that in your heads. Orders the Israeli flag, which is now flying on the Dome of the Rock Mosque. An absolute abomination to the Muslims. They're like enraged. In order to keep peace, they turn over control to three separate organizations. One is the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan. One is the Supreme Muslim Council, governed by the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem. And the other is the Israeli Antiquities Authority, who will guard who gets to dig where. And those things that were established in 1967, stand to this day. The rabbis didn't like that. So the rabbis get together, they mount a little rebellion. They get up on the Temple Mount, they say, we're not standing for this, we're going to take it back. So in August, two months later, they're up on the Temple Mount, they begin to pray, this nearly starts another war by two rabbis going up onto the Temple Mount and praying. One Ashkenazi, one Shepherdic. So the two branches of Judaism. Once they begin to do this, they realize this isn't going to work. And so to placate the situation, and this is important as you understand the plight of the Jewish people. They're in their own land. They have fought militarily. They've taken back the Temple Mount. They're actually praying on the Temple Mount. So they not only give it back again, but they say, no Jews shall wander around on the Temple Mount because they may inadvertently step on the place that used to be the Naos, the Holy of Holies. So they give it back. We're not even going to come up here and pray. Of course, the Muslims are very happy about that. So what happens is, now as we sit here tonight... They're still looking at the same governing set of rules that came from a war in 1967 that has absolutely divided Jerusalem. So when our president says we're moving our embassy back to Jerusalem, and I tell you if we do, we're going to start maybe World War III, but certainly a regional conflict. The reason is this. Satan has a grip on Jerusalem, and it's called the Temple Mount. And the only thing that's going to break that grip is the coming of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That's what's going to break that grip. Until then, even if the Jewish people, which, trust me, if Israel wanted the Temple Mount back, they'd have it right now. But they realize that that will bring war. And so they have said, look, we're going to treat this as if it's just historical. And this is the important part. So everybody says, it's just historical. We kind of think it's up there. The fact of the matter is, we know for certain that Solomon's temple was on the Temple Mount 1,500 years before the Dome of the Rock and the Al-Aqsa Mosque. 1,500 years before. And so the Jewish people treat everything. How do we get along? We've almost been wiped out. God really didn't deliver us during the Holocaust, and so... We, we kind of believe we're his chosen people. However, however, to keep peace, we'd rather not be religious 
we'd rather be secular so that we can at least have peace. And that is the condition that exists today. You see, those who desire for a different outcome ignore the obvious, and that is the Jewish people would rather have peace, temporal peace, at least tonight, than peace with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's where they currently stand. That is unchanged. But there is a time coming when that is going to change. And the blinders are going to come off. And they're going to mourn him who they pierced. And they will, as when we get to chapter 11, Paul will say, and one day all Israel will be saved. You see, the government of Jerusalem will be the king of kings and the Lord of lords. They will be Israel governed by God. Not the largely secular, primarily agnostic, many atheists. It's amazing how many Jewish people are atheists. But a large percentage of them would probably fall in the category of agnostic. In other words, they might acknowledge that God exists. About like we acknowledge that this building exists because we're inside of it, so we know it must exist, but we don't have any explanation for how it got here. It just is. So Paul is devoting this time because the obvious thing to us is, what about the promises? If God's this big God, then why does he just kick the mosques off the temple mount? Why does he just turn them into dust? Why in the world would they have given back the temple mount after they, they fought and scrapped for it? They, they lost blood and treasure. They captured it again. By the way, they did the same thing in the Yom Kippur War. They could have had it then. They could have it tonight. And in fact, the gates that are guarded right now are guarded by Israelis to keep the Jews from going on the Temple Mount because they don't want to start a war. If you're Muslim, no problem. But if you're Jewish, Connie and I, when we were there in 2013, uh, we didn't know it was illegal. Um, But you're not supposed to wander very far up there. And so we wandered over. We're thinking, hey, Jesus is coming through the Eastern Gate, which is also the Golden Gate. We figure we'll take and run over there and see what it looks like. I realize you could be shot for doing that. (laughs) Has the Lord abrogated his promises to Israel? Here we find, no, he has not. The Lord is clearly still on the throne And though he has chosen to allow these things to exist the way they are, and the Jewish people are tonight God's chosen people, irrespective of the fact that they have largely not worshipped nor served him, hence the reason reason those two primary rabbis said, well, we don't want anybody trouncing on the naos. We don't know where it is. Nobody can be ceremonially clean because we don't have a temple. There's no place to even do that. There's no mikvah here. We, we can't go rinse ourselves. So we'll just make sure everybody doesn't go up there. In spite of that, that's a pretty hard heart, isn't it? If you're God's chosen people and the temple mounts right there, you kind of think, I think I'm going to go up there and pray. But to keep peace will not. And to them, it is not as though the word of God has failed or has fallen. You see, what he's saying, look, this is not at all God's issue. God is still faithful. It is a man that has always been the unfaithful party in the relationship. Jew or Gentile, doesn't matter. Still tonight, there may be a few unfaithful people in this room. Maybe you're here tonight, and you've not been faithful to the call that's been placed upon your life by Christ Jesus. That's your choice. And so what God is saying is, look, I was perfectly just in cutting off my own people. I was perfectly just in, in in essence, giving them some temporary blindness. They chose that path. We'll get to that on Sunday, actually, as we look at the life of Pharaoh. This word that's hard for us to understand, you know, 
God hardened Pharaoh's heart? What does that mean? Come Sunday and find out. Not telling you tonight. Our own day, we have irrefutable proof that though God has, has punished the, the Jewish people because of unbelief, He punishes us because of unbelief. How many people in here have had a tragedy in your life because you didn't do what God said? He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He treats us all the same. When you know what He says and you don't do it, you can count on being punished for that. Why? Because his word is true. God chastens those whom he loves, and if he does not chasten you, he does not love you. In this case, it's a whole nation of people who are blessed of God who said, look, we'd rather have temporal peace with our earthly neighbors than have real peace with the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So he said, if that's what you want, that's not what I want. I've let you know who I am. I've, I've, I've treated you actually special relative to the rest of the world. But if that's what you want, you can have that. I want you to believe in me by faith. And so Paul says to us, this this current situation is not going to last forever. And so when our president starts doing his weird things and saying he's going to move the embassy, he's not moving the embassy, and I can tell you why. Because the Jewish people don't want the embassy moved. They want to keep it in Tel Aviv because they want the peace. They don't want any more rockets. They don't want a war. They want peace. Has God forgotten? No, he has not. Interesting thing that happened during that period of time. Underneath the Temple Mount, there's an area called Solomon's Stables. That was actually turned into a shooting range by the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem. And so in response to that, a bunch of rabbis got together and said, okay, well, we'll just pray louder because they were doing it intentionally because the noise was disturbing the the prayer at the Western Wall. So they just brought more people to pray. Rather than resolving the issue, they finally just said, fine, you can have it. Continually not doing the right thing. And while we as human beings would say, well, the peace is probably worth it. God says, no, I want you to know me, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Prince of peace, not have simple earthly peace. So what do we do next? Well, the Lord is still on the throne. Jeremiah says, look, I I brought all this about. I brought this great disaster on this people, but I am going to bring on them good, all of it that I am promising them. Jeremiah understood it. Isaiah understood it. My word which goes forth from my mouth mouth shall not return void there. Just slightly after that passage we already looked at earlier in Isaiah 55. It will go. It will do what I tell tell you it will do. The chastening, the punishment, all of those things. God has a plan. And so Paul finally says, let me extrapolate on this for, for you just a little bit. In other words, not all physical Israelites are true heirs of the promise. Only those who believe the promise are true heirs. And so in order that people might understand that, he takes the three most prominent patriarchs as the example. He uses Abraham, he uses Isaac, and he uses Jacob. He says, if we can get through it with these three guys, then you'll have the principle nailed down. He says, I I want you to see here the role of faith in these verses. It, it, who is the first male descendant? You, you see, the first male descendant of Abraham, who was the first male descendant of Abraham? Who knows? Ishmael. It was not Isaac, amen? So who, who should be the heir of promise? It should be Ishmael. But because he was born in rebellion, not trusting God, Hagar the handmaid, right? So that's, well, we're not going to do it your way. We're not going to wait in faith. We're going to take things into our own hands. So the picture becomes very clear when you understand the history. As soon as Hagar becomes pregnant, what happens? Sarah's jealous. She's envious. And by the time Ishmael is born, Hagar and her newly weaned son are driven right out of the household. Who do they become? And by the way, They're Shemites. They are descendants of Shem. 
They're related to the Jewish people. They're the Arabs. So when you walk in rebellion to God, you can still be absolutely related to Abraham and yet be completely outside of the promise. You see, rebellion does that. Not listening to God does that. Not making the right choices, but making the wrong choices does that. You see, the promise was, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. It wasn't, somebody will bear you a son. It was Sarah. And of course, Sarah does bear a son, and his name is Isaac, and it is from him. Uh, that those that would come would be the direct descendants. And by the way, Abraham had six other sons by Keturah. And so Abraham had all kinds of kids. So it's not the fact that you're related to Abraham. It's the fact that you're related to him by faith through Isaac, the one child that was waited for in the promise. You see, God has always known that there would be Jewish people who would adhere and listen and love the Lord their God with all of their heart and their soul and their mind and their strength. They would say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God, the Lord is one. And they'd believe it. God knew that. And yet there's been an awful lot of Jewish people who didn't believe that. They're not all children because they're Abraham's descendants, is the picture here. It was not the children of flesh. It wasn't the other children by Hagar or Keturah. It was the one line. And that truth is remarkably put forward to us when you think about it in the life of Elijah the prophet. Now remember Elijah the prophet. They're in 1 Kings chapter 19. Uh, he's, he's being chased around, and finally he fights the prophets of Baal. And when you go to Mount Carmel, there's this giant monument up there that's supposedly Elijah with a sword, and it really doesn't look biblical at all, but it's there. And you can imagine this stone altar and Elijah up there and soaking the altar with water and the prophets of Baal calling out, you know, if Baal is God, then let him take care of the sacrifice. If God is God, then God, and God wins. Boldness, incredible strength. But you know what's interesting? Most of the people didn't want to follow Elijah. Even after that great show of faith, the people were actually following Baal. They were afraid of King Ahab. They were afraid of Queen Jezebel. So much so that Elijah... Uh, himself, which we'll see quoted by the time we get to chapter 11 here in the book of Romans. Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've torn down your altars, and I'm left alone, and they're seeking my life. I've kept my, to myself 7,000, God responds to him. He says, look, you're not alone, but it's also not everybody. He says, everybody heard it. Everybody saw it. They all got the same message, but not everybody believed it. But there is a remnant. By the way, interestingly enough, one of Isaiah's sons in Isaiah chapter 7, his name is Shirjashu, which means a remnant shall return. God's always had a remnant. He's always had his hand on the Jewish people. And there will always be a remnant, and one day... God's going to fully see, realize the plan that he had all along, which is a nation governed by God, Israel. So Paul begins to just wind this up, and he, he really is saying to, it, to us, look, believing Israel uh, is, is, is not like unbelieving Israel. The Israelites uh, were almost believing that they themselves had become God. Now, that would be blasphemous for a Jewish person to say at that time or any other time, but in essence, they acted that way. It's like, if you're one of us, then you're in with God. As long as you have Jewish blood flowing through your veins, you're okay. And the Apostle Paul, God is saying to us, no, nah, nobody's heritage gets them in the kingdom. 
God is righteous. God is just. His character doesn't change. You can't love sin. You can't have a lack of faith. You must understand the promises of God. and You must believe by faith in order to be saved. It's always been the case. It will always be the case. You know, it's interesting when you look at the the lineage of Abraham and, and Isaac. The Lord leads Ruth to return to Judah with Naomi, who would end up in the lineage of Jesus, the ancestor of King David. Mordecai tells his niece, Esther, who knows whether you have attained royalty for such a time as this. But God knew. God knew exactly what he's doing. And so there in the lineage of Jesus is a Moabitess. God works in mysterious ways. And they don't always make sense to us. Going to be questions you're going to have when you get to heaven. And just in case you, you still don't get it, Paul continues and kind of gives us a second illustration to illustrate the same truth. Rebecca. She conceives twins, right? Jacob and Esau. One man. Our father Isaac. So you would think, if they both came from the child of promise, and of all things, they're twins. They're even genetically very similar, nearly identical. You would think that both of them would be okay with God, right? Mm -mm. Not so. When she conceived the, the twins by Isaac, she lived in Padam, Iran, and, and, and Rebecca is allowing these twins, in essence, she thinks they're going to be equal heirs. And yet God, in his sovereign plan, chooses Jacob who will have his name changed after he wrestles with God, right? He's not exactly perfect either. He's he's kind of a mess himself. But you know the story. Rebecca and Esau, they're they're all weaseling their way around, and finally Jacob's like, well, you know, we'll give him the right kind of food. He'll do anything. But this passage says before They were even born before they had done either good or evil. God chose Jacob. How does it make mistakes? That's a hard thing for us to understand. Same father, same mother, born minutes apart. You're thinking, I mean, come on. Give the guys a break. Make them joint heirs. Co-leaders. Can I tell you something? God was right, wasn't he? You know how we know? Paul says it this way. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau... I hate it. God, knowing absolutely everything of all times, the prophet Amos had declared in Amos chapter 1, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions, Edom, and for four, I will not revoke its punishment. He shall be pursued by his brother with a sword, and when he is stifled in his compassion, his anger shall rise continually, and it will be maintained by fury forever, and so I will send fire upon Teman, And I will consume the citadels of Basra, that's the ancient capital of Edom, the Edomites, the modern-day Hashemite kingdom of Jordan. Who controls the Temple Mount tonight? The modern Hashemite kingdom of Jordan. God said, this is how it's actually going to work out. And so I am going to tell you who's going to be the heir Because I know which one is the right one, and you don't. It actually isn't going to be both of them. They're going to hate each other. And they're going to hate each other for a very long time. Now, having said that, does that mean that every Jordanian hates every Israeli? Absolutely not. 
Are there wonderful Christian people in Jordan? Yes, absolutely. But you want to know how many percent? About two. Not quite two. You see, God knows what God is doing. He's the God of truth. He's the God of justice. And unlike his twin brother, Jacob sought God. He had a heart for God. And he suffered at times because of his lack of trust in God. That's absolutely true as well. When he would veer off the path, God was quick, hence his wrestling with God. Amen? I'm not quite sure I want to do this your way. I'm going to wrestle with this angel of the Lord. But this statement, Jacob, I have loved and Esau have hated, actually comes from Malachi the prophet. The Lord's hatred against Esau is just towards the idolatry. It's, a, it's toward those who do not love God. And when he speaks of godly hatred, God hates sin. So he hates people who love sin. Not because he hates the people, but he hates the sin that they do. He cannot love them, though he wants to love them. And so out of that, the Lord's love of Jacob would be that love that has descended down through the millennia now to the Jewish people. And while they're not perfect, because Abraham was sure not perfect, amen? The dude was a liar, a conniver. He was faithless at times, and yet he's in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. How about Isaac? Isaac wasn't exactly perfect either. What about Jacob? Also not perfect. So it wasn't about sinless perfection. It wasn't about works. It was always about faith. And for us tonight, it's still always about faith. That's why to as many as would receive him, to them he gave the ability to become the sons of God. To whosoever will may come. To all who call upon the name of the Lord, they shall be saved. It's not because you're of some group or not another group. You're not on one list versus another. The choice is yours. It remains so for the Jewish people. And out of the loins of that one man came two nations. One God chose for divine blessing and protection. The other, he chose for divine judgment. That's a hard saying. It's a hard thing for us to wrap our minds around. But I can tell you this, that is actually visible when you travel to Israel and then you go to Jordan. You can see it. It's tangible. You can see the hand of God's blessing. As you drive down the Jordan Rift Valley and you look at Israel on one side and Jordan on the other, you can see the hand of God's blessing. And you can see what happens when you reject God. And you follow after a false god. And while I mean no disrespect, Allah is a false god. Because Allah has no son. God plainly declares God has a son. His name is Jesus. And so if you have have belief in God that has no son, then you have a belief in a false god. As hard as that is to, to say and for people to hear, that's what the Bible says. God put those conditions. Jeff Gill did not write that. The Holy Spirit did and affected men of old to write that down. That's what it says. And so our choice is to believe it or not believe it. The Jewish people's choice was to believe or not believe. Every Arab, every Hindu, every person on the face of the earth has exactly the same choice, and that is to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved or not. That's the only criteria. It's not your national identity. It's not whether you're rich or poor. It's not whether you have a great understanding of languages. It has nothing to do with your education doesn't matter your geographic location on the face of the earth. To be justified happens by faith. To be cleansed happens by faith. To be saved happens by faith. Grace comes to us by faith. And by faith, Abraham believed God. And out of him came Isaac and Jacob. And Jacob begot Israel. And the only way that Israel will see Messiah 
is by faith. Amen? Would you stand and we'll pray together? So worship team comes back out and, and we close in song. I want to just simply remind you of the truth of the gospel. Jesus said it, I didn't. That there, there is no other way. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. So that faith role is still in play tonight. And if you're here and you do not know Christ, as the pastors come forward, that's a simple thing. It's to invite him in and say, look, I admit that I am a sinner and I need a Savior. And so if that's you, just simply come forward and be prayed for. If you're here tonight and maybe you need greater faith, you just want somebody to pray for you for more faith, Jesus prayed for that for the disciples. That's a good thing to pray for. Maybe you need more faith. Come and be prayed for. If your life is where you believe God wants it, then praise him. Amen? Because he has blessed us for no other reason than he is good and he is God. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. And we pray that as we close tonight, Lord, you would just fill us with your spirit. I want to pray for anyone tonight who maybe has yet to make that choice by faith to believe. God, of that gospel message that declares very plainly, you are the way and you are the truth and you are the life and no one comes to the Father but by you. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so we pray tonight that if anyone recognizes that, that by faith they would invite you, Jesus, to be their Lord and Savior. God, we pray again for the Jewish people. We ask that those blinders, which in part have happened, you said Jesus, until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And we believe that that age is drawing to a close. So would you begin to take the blinders off? Would the Jewish people see Messiah? And come running to him, Lord, to those everlasting arms of grace. We bless you. We praise you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.